You're listening to the Renovation Church Sermon Podcast. For more information on services and events at our Simpsonville and Greenville locations, visit us online at therenovation.church. Today's message is presented by our Greenville teaching pastor, Matt Humphrey. Hey, we have been going through the Gospel of Matthew together. I hope you've been reading along as a church. We're going through the New Testament together, a chapter a day, five days a week. Um, And we've been teaching through the Gospel of Matthew. Um, And so I I hope you've been following along, hope you've been learning and growing as we do that. Uh, But I want to pose a question that we're going to encounter today uh, from a non-spiritual standpoint about who's the greatest. Because there's always the debate when it comes to a sport. Like, for instance, basketball. Like, who's, who's the greatest basketball player of all time? LeBron James. What? Dude, Larry Bird? Come on. No, the greatest, the GOAT. Come on. Michael Jordan. You can't, you can't debate it. There's just, I, I get what you want to say, but you're wrong. Um, you're entitled to your own wrong opinion. It's fine. Um, ESPN put these out. All right, what about, uh, what about football? Tom Brady. Ooh, come on. Somebody said it. Joe Montana. Younger people are like, who? What? That's a state, right? No, it's, it's, it's unrivaled. Um, what, about, what about boxing? The GOAT. Muhammad Ali. That's an easy one, right? Uh, what about... What's another sport? What about, we're in the South. What about barbecue? <laughs> It's weird. That voice sounded awful lot like him. Uh, <laughs> all right, baseball. Babe Ruth. Come on, the great Bambino. Babe Ruth. That's the one. What about uh, what about the uh, the greatest Clemson football player ever? Trick question. There is none. It's just fine. <laughs> all right. All right. Come on. I had to do it. But. On a serious note, okay, we, we talk about, there, there's debates about who's the greatest, who's accomplished this, there's the stats, there's all of that. But what if, what if we zoom out for just a minute, okay? What about like the greatest of all time? I know we're in church and the answer is always Jesus or God. But, but what about like, what's the metric for valuing greatness in life? What's the, what's the, what's the rubric for, for gauging whether or not someone is the greatest with what they've done, with what they've accomplished, with what they stand for, their character. Who is, who is the greatest in the kingdom? And in fact, Jesus' disciples asked this question several times. This, this idea is thrown around of, of, well, in your standards, Jesus, in your kingdom, how do you define greatness? And so we're gonna, we're gonna look at how Jesus answers that question today. Uh, but three key moments that we're going to see in this. The first one is that we're going to understand is that greatness is not determined by power, but it's determined by posture. Jesus makes it abundantly clear that the way that greatness is defined in his kingdom is not by the power that is accumulated, the authority that's established, but, but greatness is determined by the posture. Um, in the ancient culture, there was a big uh, challenge. There was a big uh, competition for, for honor and for rivalry of position in many ancient societies. Uh, those that had money, that had capital, uh, you could advance economically, but even if you could somewhat squeak out a little bit more than what you were given, you couldn't really break through the, bearer, the bearers 
of the, uh, of the political and the, the, the familial ties. There was, there was ceilings. Um, even um, in circles that, that rank was assigned by noble birth, by age, by demographic, by your profession, is that there was, a, there was a huge system on ranking and on where you stood in light of everyone else. Um, whatever means it was determined, it was a critical issue. And even for the Jewish people, um, it was how faithful you were to obey God's covenant, God's laws. Um, more than today... Uh, we, we see that we live in a world that strives for notoriety. We live in a culture that strives for recognition, that strives for, for greatness. Who has the most followers? Who has the greatest influence? Who has the most people looking to them for wisdom and for advice? Who's accomplished the most? Who's seen the most? Who's amassed the most wealth? Who is the greatest? How many accomplishments do you have? And Jesus takes the idea of positional greatness as he always does and in the kingdom completely flips it upside down. So Matthew chapter 18, we're gonna be in. Uh, we're gonna hit some highlights, but we're gonna follow a thread that Jesus lays out for us in defining greatness. Matthew 18, we're gonna start in verse one. It says, at that time, uh, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Now, this isn't an excuse for grown adults to act like children. So this isn't like permission for your tantrum, okay? He's, he's talking about the posture of a child. Now, children were not seen as incredibly valuable uh, in the society at the time. Uh, children were, uh, were seen, were not heard. Children were, were not looked as of other than just a responsibility to take care of. But he's saying greatness isn't determined in power. Um, it's not determined in might. It's not determined in position. But the way that Jesus in this statement defines greatness is by the posture that you and I have in our lives. And he's saying the posture that if you want to be great, you're to have, that I'm to have, is the posture of a child. Is the posture of a lowly child. I was thinking about children. One commentator said, um, that a child was really was someone of no importance other than a responsibility, that they're not threatening, that no one's ever been terrified of meeting a four-year-old in a dark alley, right? Unless they're on a tricycle and you've seen too many scary movies or something like that, right? But no one's ever like intimidated by like, oh, it's a dark alley and I'm, I'm met by a toddler or a little child. Like they're, they're not intimidating. And they, they went on to say that when we have a tough, intimidating presence, that we're not like Jesus. Meaning that if you look to your source of greatness by how well you can intimidate others, by how you can allure authority over others, by how all, all power rides in your control, that's not greatness. And that's not modeling the way that Jesus lived. Think about this. Kids wanted to be around Jesus and Jesus welcomed the children. 
That should say a whole lot about his demeanor, about his character, about the way that he conducted himself. That children desired to be around them. Children are also not good at deceiving. And now I'm not saying that, that children are completely honest. Um, I have three children. We've been through all the stages. But children aren't great at putting up a front or fooling their parents. Like you played hide and go seek with, with a toddler. It's like this, you know? You can't see me or if I close my eyes. Uh, when we're good at hiding ourselves and deceiving others, we aren't like Jesus. Um, and the child is held up in this like an ideal, not of innocence or purity or faith, but of humility. Um, humble doesn't just refer to a phony way of modesty, but as Jesus, it's the acceptance of an inferior position. Now, I love how Philippians 2 states it about the humility of Jesus. And it's not in your notes. Actually, I'll get to it in a second. But uh, some ways of a child, I was thinking about this. One, kids have simple faith. It's not complicated by previous unmet expectations they've placed on God that sometimes we do. Or where God has, has not answered a prayer that we have thought that he should answer in a certain way. There's a simple faith about kids. When my kids, especially when we're, little, we're, we're really young, we, we still pray for them every day. We still pray for stuff. But when they were really young, we tried to model this. Like when they got hurt, we would pray for their, for their boo-boos or pray for their cuts or pray for their scrapes or, or, or self-inflicted wounds on their head. You know, we would do that. And I love that, especially when they were really small, their first response when they got hurt was, mom and dad, will you pray for me? Because it was just this simple faith that was uncomplicated um, by the trials and tribulations of life. They weren't jaded by them. But it was that God hears me, God heals me, I'm gonna ask God. Childlike faith, it's uncomplicated. It's a simple obedience. It's not, um, I need to understand all the terms and conditions before I obey. It's not, well, God, you don't understand. It's, it's a simple obedience. Um, and not letting ego get in the way. Uh, there's not a whole lot of ego when it comes to childlike faith. Um, it's not false modesty, but that, it's, that acceptance. Now think about this, Philippians 2. I'm gonna start uh, in verse nine and then I'm gonna go backwards, but I think it's really important to highlight this, the, the attitude of Jesus. Verse nine says, therefore, and we're gonna get to that point in a minute, that God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. The name of Jesus that every knee should bow on heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there's a statement. He's saying, therefore, God has given him the name above all names. So that must be a powerful statement before that for Paul to draw this conclusion to say, therefore, in light of what we just read, that God has given him the name above every name, that at one point, at everyone every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So what's that statement that he makes? He talks about Jesus, verse six. He says, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. He's saying that Jesus, the king of the universe, humbled himself to the posture of a servant. 
that he humbled himself to death. He humbled himself to death on the cross. Therefore, his name is exalted. Do you see the dichotomy? That greatness is not in lording over power, but Jesus modeled it. He humbled himself to a servant. Therefore, in the eyes of the kingdom, he had greatness. Jesus saying, hey, you wanna be great in the kingdom, have the posture of a child. We have that simple faith. The second truth that we see is that we have a responsibility to care, protect, and value like Jesus did. We talk about this a lot. We wanna learn the things that Jesus taught. We wanna do the things that Jesus tells us. We wanna live life the way that Jesus lived. Then we have to value the things that Jesus valued. We have to protect and to care for those that Jesus did. Now, I'm, for, for sake of time, I'm gonna summarize a, a lot of this because we, we really just don't have time today because uh, we're gonna take communion and, and worship together later. Um, remember, Jesus is on this. We're gonna follow this thread where he's talking about the importance of childlike faith. He's talking about having that posture. But then he, he goes on to say, hey, don't let anyone cause one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble talking about children, but also talking about believers because if we humble ourselves to the posture of a child. He's saying it's better for a millstone to be tied around their neck for them to be thrown into the sea than to cause a little one to stumble, meaning that there's importance on children, meaning that they're valuable to Jesus. And he's talking about the the reality of sin and how if our eye causes us to sin or a hand or a foot, it's better to go without one of those than to be led into sin. He's talking about the ramifications of our life affecting other people and not preventing them from hearing the message, not preventing them from following Jesus. And then he goes into continuing this thread of talking about little ones. He talks about the parable of the sheep. And the heart of the father is that the father would leave the the 99 safe sheep to go after the one wayward one to bring him back and there would be rejoicing. He's talking about his, his, his posture of caring and valuing for little ones. Now, you would think in this, you've heard these three teachings in a row uh, about the importance of children, the importance of little ones. The disciples surely have gotten it by now, right? Now, I know it's cynical of us, maybe just of me, uh, to look at the disciples and like, you guys are dense at times. Beyond honest. Like we talked about last week, they saw the miracle of the 5,000 and the 4,000 and they're like, oh, we don't have bread, you know? And so they hear Jesus bring a child as a sermon illustration. Hey, have this posture. Hey, don't cause a little one to stumble. Hey, look, God loves the little ones. He'd go after the, 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 the one and leave the 99. So flip ahead with me to uh, chapter 19, uh, verse 13. 19, verse 13. Then people brought children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Really? Like we just talked about, Jesus even said, hey, don't let, like, don't hinder them from, from coming to me. And the parents are like bringing their child to be dedicated, to be blessed by the Lord. And they're like, no, 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 no. He's got too many important things. You know, he's got people to heal. He's got messages to teach. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And when he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. What does this mean for us? 
means for us that if we want to value the things that Jesus valued and value the people that Jesus valued and to protect those that, that Jesus is saying, hey, it's important to not cause them to stumble, then we as a church, we're gonna put all our chips in on the next generation. Not disregarding everyone else, but, but we care about the next generation. That's why I love like what happens on the Sunday morning next door. I love the, the incredible people that pour into uh, our infants and our kids and our students on Wednesday nights because it's important. Uh, Barna Research says that 90, 94% of adults who give their lives to Jesus do so under the age of 18. 94%. That means that the 6% that surrender their life to after Jesus that happens in here. 94% of it statistically happens under the age of 18. That's a massive difference. Meaning that we should care and we should shepherd and we should serve. It's not babysitting. It's not just a place for you to drop your kids off for you to come in here. Like they're, they're teaching them about the eternal hope and joy that they can have in the resurrected Jesus. It's not a, a matter of, of just babysitting. It's a matter of life and death. Shameless plug, if you're not serving somewhere, God has given you gifts that he wants you to, to utilize, to, to serve other people, to build up his church. I couldn't think of a closer thing than the heart of God than to serve with kids, to serve with, with infants. You're like, I don't, I don't really like kids. I don't really like teenagers. That's okay. Can you tolerate them? That's like, that's a starting point. When I did student ministry, I'm like, if you love teenagers, I'm like, who loves teenagers? Let's be honest. You know, if you can tolerate them, but you love Jesus, that's what I'm looking for. Okay. That's, that's a gold star in my book. Look, we have a bus that drives from here every Wednesday night and takes our students down to Simpsonville as we gather together as one church and brings them back. You're like, I don't wanna lead a Bible study. Can you drive a van? Can you drive a bus? Great. God has given every single follower gifts and talents to be utilized for his kingdom. If you're not doing something with them, then there's a need that God wants to be met that you're not meeting. There's something that he wants to be done that you're not doing. God's not looking for robots. God's looking for the body of Christ to be built up for the declaration of the resurrected Jesus to be declared to the next generation and the generation after that and the generation after that. So as a church, we believe in young people. We believe in old people. We believe in all people. But we're gonna value the things that Jesus valued. And lastly, number three, is that in the kingdom, we don't compete, we follow the king. We don't compete, we follow the king. I, I have to admit, I can be competitive by nature. Like people who just play games for fun, I don't get it. There's winners and there's losers, okay? <laughs> That's, uh, like, it's just weird. So like, I, I admit, like, I beat my kids in games, so like, let me win. I'm like, no, you gotta earn it. Um, maybe call it bad parenting, call it good parenting, whatever you want to call it. Um, but even like as a kid, it was competitive. Like no matter what, if there's a challenge, like uh, we had a, a fundraiser, I remember in uh, elementary school. Nowadays you get a fundraiser and like mom and dad, for some reason, have the responsibility of sponsoring them to walk around laps or to sell candy bars at the office. This was back when you 
let loose in the neighborhood and sold door to door. Remember that? We wouldn't trust anyone to do that nowadays. But I had to sell wrapping paper. And so I heard there was prizes and I heard the prizes. And one of the prizes was 50 bucks for third place. And I was like, yes, I will. And so I sold, I slung uh, wrapping paper door to door throughout my neighborhood for weeks upon end. And I got third place in my whole school because it was $50 that were given out. Turns out it was a $50, uh, 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 not, what's the, what's the word? I just completely drew a blank. Not gift card. Uh, that, wow. Uh, no, oh, wow, this is really bad. I said it in first service. Now I'm just, certificate of deposit, like a, a um, savings bond. There it is. Don't ask me for financial advice apparently right now. Um, but as a kid, I'm like 50 bucks and I get a savings bond. Do you know that thing still hasn't fully matured yet? I'm 38 years old, still collecting. It's like the biggest bait and switch ever. But I was, I was so driven. I was like, I'm going to win this thing. We are competitive by nature. We live in a culture that is competitive by nature. How many ladders, how many rungs on the ladder can I climb? How much more influence can I accumulate? I saw this stat that said Generation Alpha, that 64% say they would rather be a YouTube or social media influencer than president of the United States. No joke. I was like, I wouldn't want to be president. That sounds horrible at times. But meaning that the younger generation is saying what we value, what we see as the highest goal is to have followers, is to have people looking at you, is to have people say, wow, this person's important. This person has influence. If they say this food's good, then I'm going to eat that food. If they say go here, I'm going to go there. They're saying greatness is just how many people look at you. And Jesus is saying in the kingdom, it's not about competition. It's about how well we follow the king our last passage, go ahead, jump. We're gonna keep going. We're gonna see this theme, Matthew 20, starting in verse 20. We see this potentially awkward moment play out. It says, then the mother of Zebedee's son came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Now, some believe that this, they were talking about this in, other, in the other accounts, and so the mom is just acting on behalf of them. Or this is mom going rogue and asking the coach to put her kid in. She's basically calling shotgun for her kids in the kingdom. Right? She's saying, hey, the two positions of authority for a king, the right and the left hand, let my two sons sit there. Verse 22, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. They're like, how dare you ask first? We should have done it. It says, Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. 
You know that this generation, it's all about how spiritual you are, how spiritual you, you are or can appear to be. It's, it's how many people will follow you. It's, it's oh, who your, your rabbi is. It's, it's how much you can lord over others that determines and shows your greatness, your, your power, your influence. But he says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He didn't say it's wrong to have aspirations of greatness, to do great things for the kingdom. He's saying, but the way that greatness is determined is not who sits at the right or at the left. It's those that, that, that humble themselves to the posture of a servant. Those that say that this world is not something to accomplish or to try to conquer. But maybe the upside down way of the kingdom is maybe this world is a a place for me to serve, to honor, to lift up others. I saw this this week, this testimony of a a guy named David Nasser. Uh, he's an author now, but he, um, he talked about when he was nine years old, he, he was Iranian. Uh, his family, they were Muslims. They, they moved to the United States um, during the Iranian conflict in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, they, they ended up in Europe for about a year and then finally settled in, uh, in the deep south of the United States. And growing up, uh, he kind of was ostracized. He didn't really fit in with crowds. He um, he had a real hard time, and it wasn't until high school that he really kind of caught his stride and began to make friends and became popular. And then at the end of high school, all of his friends went off to college, and he wasn't, and he was kind of stuck, and it was one other guy, and they were kind of heading down a wrong path. And he was just at this intersection of his life where he was searching for value, searching for significance, didn't know what was going to become of him. And his friend uh, invited him to come to church, and he He's like, you don't understand, like my, my dad was an Iranian military leader. Like our, families, our, our family are, are, are Muslims, like there's no way that he's gonna let me come to church. And so he said, I, I have to ask first. And so what he, what he didn't know is when he went to go ask his dad, his dad owned a restaurant. Um, and earlier that week in the restaurant, um, during the middle of, of a lunch rush, there was a a worship pastor from the church uh, right nearby and some other people that went to the church that were there. And they recognized in the middle of lunch rush that the restaurant was wildly understaffed. And so they got up from their meal, they put on aprons and they started to wait on tables. They started to bust tables. The next day they showed back up again for lunch and the same thing happened. They got up from their lunch, they put on aprons and they began serving in the restaurant however they could. And they sat down, they, they, they asked this, the dad who owned the restaurant, they invited him to choir practice. And the guy kind of just felt bad because like here they are working for free in my restaurant. And so out of obligation, he went to choir practice. And the, the, the worship leader, he said, hey, everyone in the choir, um, it's mandatory for you to volunteer in this gentleman's restaurant for the next two weeks because he's understaffed. And it was just so shocking to this dad because he went from fleeing from a radical hostility in Iran to this radical hospitality that was displayed. So when David approached his dad and asked him if he could go to church with his friend, his dad said, well, what church is it? And it happened to be the exact church that those people were from that had been serving 
So David went to youth that night and he went to this youth rally and he, he was presented the gospel and he didn't know what to think and he goes back home and the next night, Monday night, 17 teenagers show up at his house and are telling him the gospel, explaining who Jesus was and how Jesus loves him. And, and every week he started going to church on Sundays and on Wednesdays and on Mondays, these same teenagers would show up at his house and, and talk to them about the, talk to, teach them the importance of the gospel. And, and one night he's at church and the pastor gives, a, gives an invitation for salvation for those to put their faith in Jesus. And he just couldn't take it anymore. He just, he, he, he walked out, he went home and he's like, I'm just, I'm done with this whole God thing. And he grabbed the Bible that he had been given from this church and he went outside, he doused it with lighter fluid, puts it on the grill, and goes to set it on fire, but can't find a match anywhere. And out of desperation, he flips open the Bible and reads about where Jesus calls Peter out onto the water. And he realized that, that God was, was calling him. And that night, he surrendered his life to Jesus in his bedroom. And David Nasser went on to become a pastor and a writer and a speaker. And now he preaches to over 700,000 people a year. And he told his dad that he gave his life to Jesus. He got kicked out of his house. And he went and lived at his friend's house for a while. But within the next five years, his sister, his relatives, his mom, and even his dad gave their lives to Jesus. Why? What was the first domino in this whole thing? Servanthood. It was people who saw a problem. And instead of complaining about the bad service, instead of complaining about what they should get, said, you know what? We're gonna do something about it. And their servant posture through hospitality, opened up a window for a young man to hear the gospel. And now millions of people have heard the teachings of Jesus because some people understood that greatness is not lording over others. Greatness is serving others. And we see this when we take communion together. I want to, in fact, invite the band up. We see this modeled in the gospels. We see this model that for thousands of years as God's people had gathered together to celebrate the Passover, to celebrate God's deliverance of his people out of Egypt, out of slavery and oppression. As they gathered together and as Jesus gathered with his disciples the night that he was betrayed, knowing that at the very table one would betray him, some would abandon, others would flee and scatter. John's account tells us that after he established this, this Passover meal as something new, is that this, this bread, what it had represented, now it's going to represent my body that's going to be broken for you. Jesus, who took our place, And the, and the cup, the cup of suffering now would represent the new covenant, the, the covenant confirmed with his blood that was shed for, for my sins, for your sins, for the atonement of sin. And John's account says after dinner, 
that Jesus did the unthinkable, that he got up from the meal, took off his outer garment and wrapped it around himself and went around the table washing his disciples' feet. The king of the universe, the word that became flesh, humbled himself from those that would betray him and wash their dirty, filthy feet. Jesus modeled servant leadership. Jesus modeled sacrificial love by how he lived, but most importantly, by how he died. And so when we take communion, Paul tells us that we're to examine ourselves before we do it. It's not something flippant. It's not ritual. It's a moment when we stop and we remember the sacrifice of Jesus. That his body was broken for you and I. So we're gonna take just a couple of minutes that just between you and the Lord, if there's things that you need to confess, confess them. If there's things that you need to repent of, repent of them. If there's areas where where you have been trying to lord over others instead of stooping down and having a childlike posture and serving others as Jesus did, that you would you'd bring that before the Lord. And also it's clear that if, if, look, if, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus yet, I'm so glad you're here. But scripture's clear that, that for those that, that have put their faith in the finished work of Jesus, that we take this together. So let's take just a moment just between you and the Lord, just confessing, repenting, thanking him for what he has done, for what he is doing. And then I'll lead us in communion. So right now, between you and the Lord. sins of the world. We remember your covenant. Lord, that you died for us because you love us. And so we remember today. We thank you for your sacrifice. 
Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the Renovation Church Sermon Podcast. Find out more about following Jesus and building His kingdom at therenovation.church.